Well, there's a, there's a fairly well-known anecdote. I shared it here years ago. It was a lot of years ago. So I'm going to tell it again. It goes like this. There was a man standing on the ledge of a bridge about to jump. And a second man runs over to him and says, Stop. Don't do it. Why shouldn't I? The jumper asks. And the rest of their alternating conversation goes as follows. Well, there's much to live for. Like what? Well, are you religious? Yes. Me too, said the man trying to save him. Well, are you a Christian or a Buddhist or what? Christian. Me too. Are you Catholic or Protestant? Protestant. Me too. Are you Episcopalian or Baptist? Baptist. Wow, me too. Are you Baptist Church of God or Baptist Church of the Lord? Baptist Church of God, he says. This is the jumper talking. Baptist Church of God. Me too. Are you original Baptist Church of God? Or are you Reformed Baptist Church of God? I'm Reformed Baptist Church of God. Me too. Are you Reformed Baptist Church of God, Reformation of 1879? <laughs> or are you Reformed Baptist Church of God, Reformation of 1915? The jumper said, Reformed Baptist Church of God, Reformation of 1915. The other man said, Die, heretic. <laughs> Pushed him off the bridge. Christians, it comes as no surprise, have some preposterous divisions. They look really big up close. Far away, they look really stupid. And these divisions in which we are enmeshed, they create some profoundly misplaced loyalties. We are very, very creative at dividing the body of Christ because we're very, very ferocious about second and third order things. In fact, I remember years ago seeing a book. Big, fat book, 400 plus pages, called The Handbook of Denominations in the United States. So in this case, being a fat book, not a good thing. So however one wants to account for this, and we're not going to explore this phenomenon this morning, but however one wants to account for it, the basic fact remains, the visible church of Christ remains miserably divided. At least in its visible man manifestation. And we should make no mistake, this division is a scandal which adversely affects our testimony to the gospel in the world. You heard that in the gospel lesson. Jesus thinks the world won't believe that he was sent with this division persisting. And we're amazingly blind to this. Right? We often talk, well, what should the church do about X? What does the church do about the culture? What should the church do about Y? Hey, here's an idea. How about not be shattered into 10,000 pieces? Well, that's no good. We can't fix that. So if we believe the testimony of Scripture, not, not simply the testimony of Scripture, the prayer of Jesus to his Father in the final hours of his life on earth, 
This is a situation then which grieves the Lord and should grieve us. Jesus prays vigorously for unity, which, again, this unity doesn't mean necessarily one visible church structure. We're going to see it doesn't necessarily mean that. But it is a unity which manifests itself visibly and concretely. He prays for this in his high priestly prayer, which we read. So our text this morning is a related text. It's a New Testament lesson from Ephesians. It's about our unity in Christ in the teeth or in the face of this fragmentation. We're so used to the fragmentation, we just tend to filter it out, right? It's like the frog in the, in the boiling water kind of a thing with us and the division. But this Ephesians text is a reminder of what is and what is to be. And it's also a fitting text for the series we're in the middle of on the Trinity. Not simply because the text mentions the Holy Trinity. That's not all that's here. But because it speaks of the Trinity in a way which is immediately, concretely relevant for your life, for our life together, in the church, on the ground. Relevant to the unity and to the peace, to the well-being of the church. Which should be no surprise, because we believe high theology is highly practical. And so what we have here in Ephesians is a Trinitarian vision, a Trinitarian consciousness, which touches down in the midst of congregational life. So we'll take the text out of order. It's the, the, the outline is there in your bulletin on page 5. We'll look first at verses 3 through 6, and then at verses 1 through 2. And we'll make the two points that are there. The Trinity and unity. The Trinity and unity, or the Trinity being the root, the unity being the fruit. So first, let's look at how our unity is rooted in the unity of the triune God. It might be helpful to remember that when we say Trinity here, like we mean tri-unity, right? The triune God is the God whose oneness is expressed in a threefold way. So, here in the text, Paul, because he's starting with the church, right? He's starting with us. He's starting with the congregation at Ephesus. He moves then from the Spirit to the Son to the Father. He moves from below to above, if you will. From the, the bottom of the creed, the third article of the creed, through the second to the top. He moves from the Spirit to the Son to the Father. Because that's how we move. So first then, uh, we'll look at the Spirit as the source of our unity. So it's Ephesians 4, verse 3. Paul says this, We should be endeavoring, or we should be eager, to keep or to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. So it's important to see at the outset, and this is the good news in the teeth of our divisions. This is the good news. The church possesses an indestructible unity in the spirit. Despite what I said about the divisions, there is an indestructible unity that we cannot destroy. And this follows since the spirit is the spirit of God and God is one. This is the connection that we often don't make. 
We tend to think of unity as perhaps an achievement of God's grace or a sociological phenomenon, but it's actually rooted in the being of God. We are not called here to create the unity of the Spirit. It already exists as a gift of God. We are called to keep what we already have, to not mar it, to not mangle its visible manifestation. Christ has reconciled us, and from Jew and Gentile, he has created one new man. Right? And this unity of the Spirit, the text says, has created a bond of peace, a bond of shalom, a bond of harmony, a bond of well-being between us. So God establishes us here at Westminster and throughout the world. He establishes us as one body. And your well-being and the well-being of your brothers and sisters depends on endeavoring, Paul says. The word means to strive. To labor. It's a vigorous word. It, 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 it depends on our together endeavoring, striving to maintain or to protect or to preserve this unity and peace in the church. And you know where many of you have heard this and covenanted before God to do it? Was in the membership vows that we just heard read. The last vow. You submit to the government and discipline of the church and promise to study or to seek its purity and its peace. The very vows of membership commit us to being peacemakers, to being people who overcome alienation and estrangement, which is a costly calling. The language, the language Paul uses here of being eager to maintain, or in the NIV it says, make every effort, be in haste, be urgent about this. This is a divinely established peace, and you are called to be its guardian. In other words, this peace will not maintain itself. It can suffer from neglect. Right? Paul knows the fragility of peace and unity in the church. Right? It just takes one trivial thing. So, he knows that we can easily become destroyers of the peace. And so beginning in verse 4, he uses the word, it kind of hits you when you read it, right? He uses the word one. One. There's no two-ness or three-ness or ten thousand-ness in Paul's conception of the church. He uses the word one seven times in rapid succession. And the first three uses are tied to the Spirit. He says... There's one body and there is one spirit. Just as you were called in one hope of your calling. Again, there is only one body. There can only be one body. But why? Because there's only one spirit. If there were two churches, there'd be two gods. There's only one spirit. Right? You're called to communion with the Holy Trinity And the Trinity is one, and thus the church is to be an earthly icon or manifestation of that oneness. So, for example, very parallel text. 1 Corinthians 12, Paul says this. By one spirit, we were all baptized into one body. You see that same association here. One spirit, therefore one body. 
It's an instinct that we do well to cultivate, right? Like if you were to say to someone, why is there only one church on the earth? The instinctive answer should be this, because there's only one God. (laughs) Because there's only one spirit. The unity of the church then is grounded in, it's kind of like a creaturely reflection, an icon of the unity of God. And the early church understood this because they placed this, they placed the church in the third article of the creed under the Holy Spirit. I believe in the Holy Spirit, the Holy Catholic Church. One spirit, one church. As well, notice what Paul says here. There is one hope of your calling. All of us possess the exact same hope. Right? The same future inheritance. There are not two Christian hopes, right? One for some people, one for other people, one hope for this world, one hope for the world to come, one hope for America, one hope for the new creation. There are not two Christian hopes, right? The church, the whole church, every member of the church in every age has one hope. In one sense, our unity works backwards from that hope. We're focused on that hope. It works backwards from the eschaton into the present. If you, walk, if you flip your Bible back in Ephesians a page or two, and you go back to chapter 1, Paul prays that God's Spirit would enlighten the eyes of our hearts so that we would know the hope of our calling. Notice the article, right? The hope of our calling. There's one hope to which we've all been summoned. So one spirit means one body, one shared destiny. Namely, the glorious appearing of our great God and Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. The living hope. The heavenly inheritance. The blessed hope. The new heavens and the new earth. So because of the Spirit, there's one body with one hope. Another way to put this is that coming unity of the eternal state where the church is fully one, that is to be manifested now. Paul thinks that that matters not just then, that it forms you as one body now. Because of the Spirit, there's one body with one hope. Secondly, then, our unity is grounded in the Son. Our unity is grounded in the Spirit, but it's also grounded in the Son. And so in verse 5, you get three more uses of the word one. One Lord, one faith, one baptism. So here, with our one Lord Jesus Christ, are associated one faith, one baptism. There's only one faith because there's only one Lord. You can start to feel how egregious our situation can be on the ground when you take this text seriously. There's only one faith because there is only one Lord who is the object of our faith. Faith here means the body of truth that we believe. He's not talking about your trust in Jesus. One faith means one body of doctrine delivered to the saints once and for all. This is why in the book of Romans, there's an astonishing passage at the end of Romans 3, where Paul says, is God the God of the Jews only, or is he the God of the Gentiles also? Well, of course, he's the God of both Jew and Gentile. And he says, because God is one, he will justify, he will save both the circumcised and the uncircumcised, by faith alone. 
It's because God is one, that there's one way of salvation. There's one faith. To think otherwise, then, to think somehow there can be many faiths, is to tear Christ into pieces or to behave as if there are multiple Christs. One Lord, also Paul says, one baptism. Right? The creed says we believe in one baptism. Notice that word, one, in the creed. It's not just that we believe in baptism. We believe in one baptism for the forgiveness of sins. Whatever you want to say about baptism in water versus baptism in the Spirit, the text makes it clear there are not two baptisms. Theologically, there's one baptism. Because in your one baptism, you are by the one Spirit baptized into the one body of the one Lord. Right? That's the summary of the sermon, right? In your one baptism, you are by the one Spirit baptized into the one body of the one Lord. So the kind of unity of the church we're talking about here as grounded in the being of God, it cannot be explained as just, you know, we're united in purpose, or we're united in will, or we have a common project, right? This is a unity of being. This is a metaphysical unity created by the triune God. The church's unity is, if you will, to use a highfalutin philosophical word, ontological. It's not just a fellowship of like-minded people who have roughly the same set of beliefs, and want to work on the same set of gospel-oriented projects together. Right? This is a, a creation of the triune God in, that is such that by your one baptism, through the one spirit, you're baptized into the one body of the one Lord. This, by the way, is why baptism, validly administered, is only administered once. Once one baptism received once and for all time. I know some of you are baptized two and three times. <laughs> Only one of them is valid. <laughs> um, so, our unity is grounded in the Spirit. It's grounded in the Son. And third, our unity is grounded in the Father. One God and Father of all, Paul says in verse 6. One God and Father of all, who's above all, through all, and in you all. Right? The one Father is the father of us all. Here meaning clearly all his children in the church. One faith creates one family. We all have in the church a shared paternity. Because the whole family, Paul says in chapter 3, the whole family in heaven and on earth has this, derives its name, its essence from the same father. And here your father is described. He's described in three ways. He's described as transcendent and pervasive and imminent. He's the transcendent God because he's above all. He never becomes our property or, or, or something we can manage. He's the all-pervading God because he's through us all. That's a curious phrase, isn't it, to say God is through us all. But it certainly means something like he wants to connect us one to another. He wants to to bind us together in unity. He wants to overcome the gaps and the spaces and the estrangement. And finally, this one God is said to be in us all. The Father dwells above and through and in the one body of the one Lord by the one Spirit creates and inhabits His church. The whole Holy Trinity dwells in you. When the Spirit comes, Christ comes, and when Christ comes, the Father comes. 
And thus we have, in this incredibly short you know, span, we have a sevenfold Trinitarian unity. One spirit, one body, one hope, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all. Now, let us not forget the point of this extraordinary piece of rhetoric from the Apostle Paul. It's to teach us that the unity of the church, the unity of her faith and life and her sacraments, is grounded in and reflects the reality of the triune God. It is true, you cannot destroy this unity. There's a certain fundamental sense in which you can't destroy it, but we can and we have marred it. We have mangled its visible manifestation. And because this is true, because this is the root, we are to bear the fruit that Paul speaks of in verses 1 and 2. And that brings us to the second point, unity. Right, we, get the, we get the Trinity, the Trinity is the root. What's the fruit? So in verse 1, Paul reminds us that he's a prisoner of the Lord. Literally, right? He's in, he's in prison. He's figuratively and literally a prisoner when he writes this letter. He is in chains. He's under house arrest because of his commitment to manifest this, to bring the gospel to the Gentiles, to reconcile them to the Jews in one body in Christ. As an aside, by the way, this is what Paul thinks about in prison. Right? This, this is where his mind goes to these kinds of things. And so he argues, well, he, he's not arguing, but he's urging us. In verse 2 he says, we are to walk worthy of the calling which we have received. That's kind of a little bit odd language on reformed ears, I think. Because our first thing is to say, well, nobody can walk worthy of the calling with which, which, which we have received. That's true in one sense, right? It's come to us from the sheer grace of God. Nevertheless, Paul expects that we are to walk in a manner that corresponds by grace to our summons, to our calling. Paul expects us to live lives worthy of the high destiny which we have in Christ. And in this context, that means he expects us to be eager to strive to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. Right? We are at war with alienation and estrangement and division. And we can see with this way of walking, this manner of walking Worthy of your calling entails, in verse 2, lowliness, he says, or humility in some translations, and meekness or gentleness. That's what he names first. Lowliness or humility, meekness, gentleness. If we care about the unity of the church, these are virtues we will seek to cultivate in our own souls. Now, I've said it before, but humility... Uh, is not a virtue which was prized in the ancient world. It's little prized today, I think. It's not prized in our climate either. The ancients cherished the hero, the great-souled man, the alpha male, the man of bravado and exploits, the man of war and victory. This was the Greek heroic ideal. And yet the apostle summons us to what he calls lowliness and meekness. Virtues 
on full display in the life of our Lord, who by his own self-description was meek and lowly of heart. I hope to address this in a few weeks, Lord willing, about, about this quality of our Lord. But for now, let me just say this. Jesus, in the whole of the Gospels, only one time tells us what his interior heart is like. He only says, this is, this is what my inner recesses are. He says, he says, I am gentle and lowly of heart. It's the only time he refers to his heart. And of course, here, we are not talking about being shy or retiring, right? Or having a naturally self-effacing personality. To be humble is simply to live in reality. It's, it's to embrace the only sane posture which redeemed creatures can have before the living God of all grace. Right? This is not play acting. If the community of the church right, is rooted in and is the product of the community of love, which is the triune God, then how grotesquely out of place, right? how vile an intruder is pride and arrogance in the Christian. So humility means to see God clearly and thus to see ourselves clearly. And it is sanity. Humility is sanity. Pride is a form of lunacy. And to the extent that pride mars and effaces the unity of the church, it's sheer lunacy. But also, we are taught here by the addition of gentleness or meekness about the mode of our actions. Humility is a state of a soul. It's, it's, it's what the medievals would call a habit. It's a, it's a virtue. Right? It becomes part of your spiritual DNA. But gentleness is the mode that humility acts with, or meekness, which means the humble person respects, defers, listens to others as gifted members of the same body made in the image of God. Humility and meekness go together. So just as there is diversity in the Godhead, so there is to be loving, uncontentious, peaceable diversity in the church. We do, in fact, we do, in fact, celebrate diversity. Right? Not fragmentation, not division, but genuine, honorable diversity. And if we possess lowliness, we'll be gentle, we'll be mild with each other. Paul thinks these are the virtues that are needed to sustain what he just theologically elaborated in our first point. He doesn't think meekness is weakness. He thinks it's mildness. He thinks it's strength under control. He thinks it's the absence of the disposition to constantly have to assert your rights. Right? This is where it rubs up against the Native American character right here. It's the absence of the disposition to constantly have to assert your rights. It's a posture which overlooks and covers up the faults of other people. You know, you know what, if you read this passage carefully, you'll notice this. Paul is clearly aware that some people aggravate other people. That they rub them the wrong way. That's why he adds the word patience which in some translations is long-suffering. It's a word which brings out, frankly, the note that there are people that you're going to have to endure, and they're going to have to endure you for a long time. 
And this is made explicit, and it's made richer by the phrase where he says, bearing with one another in love. So the foibles and the blind spots that we all possess are to be endured, for sure. They are to be born. They have to be carried. I mean, if everyone were an angel, there wouldn't be much to bear, right? I mean, nobody has to work to endure the people they delight in. Right? But how, how we endure them, how we react to them, that's the crucial matter for the apostle. Right? Paul says we do this, we bear them in long-suffering, with patience, in love. Loving forbearance is at the heart of maintaining unity. And you know what love does? The scriptures tell us, right? Love covers a multitude of sins. What? And you know why love covers a multitude of sins? Because there's a multitude to be covered. It doesn't say love covers occasional sins. Love confronts on most sins, but covers a a small minority of them. No. There's a multitude of sins because we're voluminous sinners. The first disposition of love is to cover them all in the atoning mercy of Christ, in the forbearance of Christ. That's what we're called to do. That's That's what Paul means when he says love endures all things. Love never fails. It doesn't gossip. It doesn't subtly undermine the other. It's the gift of the triune God who is the living communion of love. And so we're called to to cultivate what has been called a culture of benediction. A culture of benediction blesses the other person, encourages the other person in the face of, it's realist, right? It's in the face of all the natural and sometimes justified aggravations which exist. Anytime you have human beings in the same room, right? It remembers the blessing that has been lavished on us in the face of all our provocations of the triune God. So, I've asserted this before, but I want to say it again. I think a good deal of our unhappy divisions stem precisely from this root of pride, from a lack of true love and genuine forbearance. We tend to think, and this is an egregious, I think, mistake. We tend to think that all our divisions are righteous. All of them stem from doctrinal matters of high import. And some of them do, to be sure. Yet it's quite interesting that in the New Testament, when Paul opens up this topic, it's our own sinfulness that he highlights. He always does this. He puts us in the crosshairs. I don't think I would be wrong if I guessed that a large number of church splits, not just church splits, by the way, disintegrated friendships, alienated relationships, could be explained in terms of just these verses right here. There was a story I read about a minister who talked about a split in his church that ended up in the church courts. The courts reviewed the split, and they revealed that it started at a church dinner. I got a church fellowship meal when a man received a smaller slice of ham than a child who was seated next to him. The child got the bigger piece. Now, you might think that's silly, but anyone who's been around people in the church long enough knows 
there's a great deal of passion about these kinds of things in people. It's a, it's a, it's a monumental lack of order and proportion. And these improper handling of these small irritations leads to much bigger problems. Where, where does James think our division and fighting begins? In our noble pursuit of the truth? I don't think so. He thinks it begins, in the de- like Paul, in the depth of our sinful hearts. So, in the middle of these fractious battles, these church disintegrations, it is unlikely, right, that the life of the Holy Trinity is the object of much attention. But you can read these battles, if, you, if you've ever sat on church courts, and realize, you know what's completely dropped out of sight here, as these people are scratching and clawing at each other? What's dropped out of sight in the heat of battle is the sevenfold Trinitarian unity. One spirit, one body, one hope, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father. And the kind of ethics that that charges us, right, binds us to manifest the kind of gentleness, lowliness, humility, forbearance. In the heat of battle, all this drops out of sight. Why? Well, because this issue that we're fighting over now is the most consequential issue in this church in many, many years. Unlikely, but, you know, I mean, maybe. Once in a while, perhaps, but it's unlikely. So let me, in closing, make a provocative statement, one which I think the structure of the text bears out. Maybe it's not provocative. Hopefully at this stage of our series it's not. But all failures of charity are failures of Trinitarian theology. They, they, they simply don't have the right doctrine of God behind them. Right? Because God is one. One spirit, one Lord, one Father, and he is love. And when that love of God, who is one, manifests itself in Jesus Christ, and he shows you the depths of his heart, he says, here's what's there. Meekness and lowliness. All failures of charity are failures of a living, breathing, pulsating theology of the Trinity. For the Trinity is the fount of charity. The Trinity is the ground and the source. Right? Again, we're not just mimicking the Trinity. The Trinity is the ground and the source of the church's unity. And so what the apostle's doing in this text is beseeching you, beseeching me. But remember, he's beseeching you from his apostolic chains to manifest and preserve the unity which is ours in the body of Christ. This is hard to do. Again, it doesn't mean there must only be one visible organization. It doesn't mean that. But it does mean there must be humility and meekness and forbearance and love concretely demonstrated. We are to make every effort to do what leads to peace and mutual edification, Paul says. Every effort. So if you're estranged from somebody in here, you need to end it. You need to be the aggressor in ending it. In the famous words of St. Francis, Lord, make me an instrument of your peace. When's the last time we prayed that? Lord, make me an instrument of your peace. Where there is hate, may I bring love. Where there is offense, may I bring pardon. May I bring union in the place of discord. That's Francis. We pray that God would grant us grace to walk in a manner worthy of our calling. Remember, what are we called to? That glorious hope, that eschatological unity. Walk in a manner worthy of that now. For there is one spirit, 
One body, one hope, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all. Glory be to the triune God and peace to you, his people. For you are the church, you are the earthly icon of the Holy Trinity. Amen. Amen. Amen.